Okay, so you're interviewing Andrei Sigonkov. How did you meet him? Um, I met him, wow, it's hard to say, maybe like, maybe eight years ago. I just, I just started the, no, it was, it wasn't that, it wasn't eight years ago, because I think I was done with my, the postdoc at Pitt. So it was seven years ago. Um, I went to Atlanta for some Russia teaching something, and he happened to be there as well. Um, so I met him at this, uh, workshop on, on Russia. And then I, I, I didn't really, you know, I just, at the thing, I just met him. And then we happened to, to be at the airport in Atlanta at the same time. And we had lunch together. Uh, so I got to talk to him and, you know, share some ideas and stuff. Um, so that was the first time I met Andre in, in, in talking to him. And then, uh, in 2016, I interviewed him on Russian foreign policy because one of his his major contributions is a almost like a textbook on Russian foreign policy. I think now it's in its fifth edition. So, um, so I interviewed him about that. And then when uh, this interview, um, again, when I was asked to provide recommendations for this virtual conference on geopolitics uh, for a U.S.-Russia thing, I naturally thought of him uh, as a good person to talk to. Yeah, that last interview that you did with him in 2016, is that on the podcast? It is on the podcast, so listeners can look that up. And of course, I'll link it again in the post for this interview. So, um, so Amy, uh, this is the second episode you're participating in. And, and one of the things that I, some of the feedback I got from last week is, you know, we, we introduced you, but we didn't really learn anything about you and who you are. So uh, why don't we give a, listeners a little bit about yourself? So wh what's your story and, and why are you interested? What's your interest in audio? Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Um, so I am a working artist and a graduate student. My art is kind of semi-surreal, I would call it. Uh, it expands across various different mediums. Um, and then in graduate school, I'm studying digital and social media marketing and content production. Um, so in terms of my interest in audio, I just think audio is such a great medium. It's so pervasive, but really, really underappreciated. Like if you just think about it, we're exposed to audio and, and everything, right? Throughout our entire day from communication to um, signaling, like think about sirens or uh, police sirens or any kind of alarm system at all. And then of course, with every video that you watch, radio, and it can have a huge effect on you, right? Like it can create anything from expanding your knowledge to like really creating a visceral effect. Think about the scores for, uh, for horror films. They wouldn't be scary if it wasn't for the audio. And so I really just wanted to get into learning how to create something that can, that can communicate such a, you know, such a unique experience. And that's really where I'm coming from with my interest in audio. So I'm excited to to be working with you. Do you do you imagine using it in your art? I would love to. Or have you? Um, I have only uh, with video content. I've never done an audio piece exclusively, but I'm certainly inspired by some like some of these huge audio installations that various artists are doing. Um, you can see them a lot in modern art museums now. Uh, there's a lot more audio starting to get in there, get into the museums and be displayed in the museums. Um, and so, yeah, I'm definitely interested. It's something that's really interesting because like video, it's so linear, right? Unlike a, a piece of still art, like a painting or a photograph, which you can kind of experience in these like cyclical um, or, or continual ways. You can come back to it. You can relook at it with audio, with video. You kind of have to start at the beginning and go to the end. It's a very... Uh, linear experience. So it's something that's really interesting to play with. Yeah, it, I, I found it the, the issue, the way you said about the audio creating a visceral reaction. Um, one of the podcasts that I listened to about audio, and I'm having you listen to it as part of the internship, this podcast called How Sound by this guy named Rob Rosenthal. Uh, in one of his episodes where he, he talked about music in, in music and audio documentary or music and audio pieces, he calls music emotional fascism <laughs> <laughs> because it's there specifically to elicit some kind of emotion or to convey a tone. Yeah, absolutely. So I always found that. <laughs> That's hilarious. I like that. Emotional fascism. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I really, I really took to that, that comment of his and, 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 you know, he, he actually preaches to use music sparingly because he sees it as inherently manipulative. Mm, so, oh, that's so interesting. So, so that's a bit of, that is, that's a bit of audio shop talk for those of you <laughs> who are listening out there. Um, so this episode, let's talk about this episode. Thank you for, for telling us a bit about yourself. Um, listeners will certainly hear more from you. And, and of course, you're going to produce an episode yourself. So they'll hear that in, in the coming weeks. Um, so this episode is the second interview I recorded on April 16th for the vi virtual conference on global geopolitics, United States, Russia, and China after 2020. And this conference was organized by the International Studies Consortium of Georgia and sponsored by Reese at the University of Pittsburgh and Reinhardt University. The first interview for this, which came out last week on the podcast, was with Thomas Graham, and that was on the U.S.-Russia-China geopolitical triangle. And uh, you'll, you know, in this interview, you'll hear a lot of similar themes as last week, the issue of, you know, un trying to understand U.S.-Russia relations through the Cold War and how effective that is or, or how that's kind of a, a relic that we haven't been able to shed and various global political and economic trends that have shaped U.S.-Russia relations in the last 30 years in particular. Вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти. Welcome to the SRB Podcast. Each week we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Amelia Parlier. Uh, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and the SRB Table of Ranks. If you like this podcast and you want to support it, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org and uh, hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Uh, so Sean, why did you pick Andre for today's interview? Well, I, I find uh, uh, Andre's view of U.S.-Russia relations, the way he looks at it, the lens, um, quite interesting and unique when it comes to international relations. Um, he looks, so first off, what's interesting about him is that he rejects the idea that the United States and Russia are in conflict. He prefers, and you'll hear this in an interview, he prefers to refer to it as a rivalry, which I actually really agree with. Um, he also, and this is what's somewhat unique about his view, uh, is he, he views U.S.-Russia relations through issues of identity and values. So how each nation understands itself, how it understands the other, so how the United States understands Russia and vice versa, and how each power sees themselves in the world. And, and my you know, take on, on um, Andre's approach is you know, basically this, if we have some kind of mutual understanding and recognition of the other, so I'm speaking here as an American to understand the Russian other, um, this would really go a long way, I think, to smooth out some of the tensions and disagreements between both nations. Andrei Sigankov is a professor in the Departments of Political Science and International Relations at San Francisco State University, where he teaches Russian post-Soviet comparative and international politics. He is the author of many books and articles, most recently Russia and America, The Asymmetric Rivalry, and The Dark Double, U.S. Media, Russia, and the Politics of Values, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Andrei Sigankov. So Andrei, it's been a, it's been a while since we talked, a um, couple of years, I think. Um, but just to, to, before we get into some of the issues on conversation today, I, I, you know, you've written extensively and for a long time about U.S.-Russia relations, uh, and, and you have a particularly interesting approach in that uh, a lot of your work focuses on issues of national identity, uh, and, and how those influence foreign policy thinking. So, um, as by way of introducing yourself, I'd like you to actually address your particularly meth your particular method in, in trying to understand U.S.-Russia relations and Russian foreign policy. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sean, for for this question. I am indeed interested in both 
culture and power and that's probably is in a nutshell the method because i'm trying to combine both perspectives in international relations some of my colleagues view me as a supporter of this identity-based approach which is closer to constructivism others view me as realists which is analysis of international power politics but i think one doesn't exist without the other and uh, without going into further details that's the nature of analyzing international politics the way i see it that's the nature to understand us russia relations as well because for the united states russia has been an object of fascination for a long period of time part of it is power but the other part of it is that russia is different it's different in terms of its values in terms of its political system in the way it often approaches and handles international politics and that sometimes is quite uncomfortable for the united states that creates tensions that creates potential issues and when on top of this cultural misunderstanding you have power based disagreements it becomes very dangerous indeed as a situation that we are currently in at the moment as we speak actually so uh, i'm curious what what does this cultural analysis or or identity um method that you you use what does that give us that might be missing from other the other ways people an, an, analyze the us russia relationship well, i think uh, for the most part the world of experts of us russia relationships is the world of those who stress interests those who stress fundamental differences between state interest in international politics and how difficult it is sometimes to come to an agreement when you have fundamental disagreements on various issues and when it comes to us russia relationships both are great powers so they see themselves as responsible for the world order and they want great share in that world order they want in some respects to contribute in some respects even to define that world order so there is a fundamental difference of interest here but at the same time as i said i am very much interested in how identity is constructed in one of my work i try to explore the issue of how the united states has viewed russia as the other as the country that is different from us uh, and that's where this metaphor the dark double comes from um, uh, my friend david fogelson published uh, a wonderful book called american mission in the evil empire and that's where my metaphor comes from i borrowed this from david and he argued that the united states often defined itself culturally through russia it saw itself as non-russia as different from russia and in this case russia has served as negative other what i did in my work i simply used the framework the historically developed framework to understand the nature of us russia russia relationships after the end of the cold war over the last 30 years or so and you see uh, an interesting dynamics not a political not as much a political but culturally dynamics as captured by media perceptions of russia it's not even the state but the media as a expression of national identity because what media does it simply captures what uh, americans many americans not all but many americans feel believe at a particular moment at during the day it's an everyday expression of identity and so media covered russia over these 30 years quite in, in a quite interesting way in the early 90s russia was a success story as a transition into democracy essentially becoming us becoming the united states uh, then uh, due to fundamental changes that happened in us russia relationships uh, russia became associated with chaos particularly after the 1998 financial crisis media didn't know how to cover russia anymore they did not know where to find good metaphors uh, russia was becoming democracy and all of a sudden it's not becoming a democracy what is it becoming then 
uh, it was at loss for metaphors. And then, luckily for the media, Vladimir Putin arrived to power. And in the mid-2000s, the discourse changed again. And it became, just as during the Cold War, that Russia is a quintessential potential threat. Vladimir Putin is a potential enemy. And the metaphor now was that Russia is a neo-Soviet autocracy. This is what I found to be most prominent metaphor of Russia as adopted by American media, mainstream media, I should add. But the mainstream media defined in my case as New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, all presented Russia relatively uniformly as a new Soviet autocracy presenting a threat to the United States. And then it converged with politics. And then it became intertwined, culture and politics intertwined. That image of new Soviet autocracy was borrowed by politicians, particularly in the, in the late 2000s. And this is where we are right now. Well, let's, let's get into some of those issues and some of the problems and tensions they create. Um, now, you know, up until this very moment, we're often uh, told, and, and I think it's safe to say it's somewhat true, that U.S.-Russia relations are at a low, very low point since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and of course, yesterday, the Biden administration announced a new round of sanctions. Um, I'd like to have your uh, current assessment of the state of U.S.-Russia relations as we see them right now. Well, it will be hard to find an expert now, Sean, who will disagree with the assessment that this is the lowest point since the end of the Cold War. So I'm not an exception here. I agree with this assessment. This is not the lowest possible state of relationships, but this is the lowest since the end of the Cold War in politics, economics. Uh, there is a potential for even military collision, military confrontation. Um, I mean, if you ask this question, uh, it begs some comparisons. We may, we may discuss the Cold War too. But since the end of the Cold War, U.S. and Russia went through three cycles, uh, each time in the 90s, in the 2000s, and then in 2010s, each time Russia approached the United States with very extensive proposals for cooperation, and each time it didn't work. In the early 90s, this was the idea of strategic partnership, Russia becoming part of the West, and then uh, in the mid-90s, it changed principally in a different direction for various reasons. United States decided to extend NATO. United States pushed for shock therapy that became very detrimental to Russia's economic reforms. United States supported uh, negotiations, political negotiations with Chechen, Chechen separatists. All of this contributed to the sense of uh, alienation. And then, of course, the Yugoslavia conflict and U.S. and NATO intervention, military intervention in 1999 ended this cycle. Then Putin comes into the office in the early 2000s and then again proposes cooperation, extends the partnership framework based on fighting terrorism after September the 11th. That doesn't work either for multiple reasons. United States engages in global democracy promotion, and this is where Ukraine comes up. United States walks away from the ABM Treaty and proposes missile defense system, continues two rounds of NATO expansion. Then um, Medvedev comes along, uh, and he also tries to rebuild relationships, now reciprocated by Barack Obama's offer to reset relationships. That also doesn't work for various reasons, and it ends in the uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis, 2014, and we are essentially are today, 2016, Russia's interference in US elections, all cyber issues now recalled ambassador uh, from Washington, Biden's uh, new sanctions. There is uh, no cycle anymore. Where we are right now, uh, neither side hopes for a more extended cooperation cycles ended. We are in the stage of structural conflict over future world order, exacerbated by liberal ideology and pressures on part of the new U.S. administration with Joe Biden as president. 
One of the things about, so to, to comment on your answer is a, a lot of people will listen to you now and say, okay, so basically your your general line is that Russia is looking for cooperation and, and at each step, the United States has kind of slapped their hand away. Um, uh, you know, for many Americans, this is a narrative that is is not what we usually hear. We usually actually hear the exact opposite. <laughs> um, so, how would you how would you respond to to someone who says, "Well, I mean, this basically is taking the Russian position, right?" It's always we have this rhetoric of now of like the pro Russia position, the pro American position, and and frankly, it, this kind of back and forth doesn't really get us very far. Um, I, I would like to have your comments on on that. Well, the uh, most popular theory, actually two most popular theories. One of them is the theory of a new Cold War that Russia is fighting with the United States. The other one is that uh, uh, is that Vladimir Putin uh, is uh, conducting foreign policy based on his ratings. It's all about regime stability. Whatever Putin does in foreign policy is a reflection of his domestic potential instability. He doesn't have sufficient legitimacy at home, so he compensates for his lack of legitimacy at home with domestic, with foreign policy adventures. And both of these theories are actually flawed, fundamentally flawed. Uh, the Cold War framework is flawed because the Cold War, in many respects, belongs in the past. Where we are at right now is, in some respects, more dangerous, in some respects, less dangerous. It's a diff different framework. Cold War was, of course, highly structured ideological conflict, symmetrical, with some red lines firmly established. We no longer have red lines. We are only trying to learn these red lines through crisis. Uh, one of these crises now hopefully will get both sides to learn some of these red lines. Uh, we had some other crises that have been helpful in this respect. Uh, we, don't, we no longer have firm ideological frameworks because the old dichotomy be between capitalism on the one hand and communism on the other is gone. Uh, you do not find ideological justification in Putin's Russia, in Russia today, for eliminating the other side. It's simply not there. What Russia is doing is not fighting the Cold War. It is simply trying to make room for itself in the new world order. It sees itself at, as protecting its vital foreign policy interests. And those interests have to do with uh, sovereignty, non-interference in Russian domestic affairs. They have to do with neutrality of its periphery. Call it uh, spheres of influence, if you will. But this is about security, first and foremost. If you remember, again, uh, two waves of NATO expansion, missile defense system, military buildup on Russian borders. Then Russians see this as potentially threatening. And they want to be sure that Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, and others are not members of NATO. And the third one is also security. It's balance of power, first and foremost. So the goals are not really about fighting the Cold War. It's different. It's rivalry. I call it rivalry in one of my works, rather than Cold War or any war. So it's very different framework, therefore. And uh, I can go on, but let me address the other theory as well. The other theory that uh, Putin is the one to blame once Putin is out of power, things will be back to normal. Normal meaning that Russia will cooperate. When we say Russia will join our alliances system, that's not likely to happen for multiple reasons. A, Vladimir Putin, whether you like him or not, is a legitimate ruler in Russia. Even after arresting the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, 50% of the population support him rather than Navalny. Less than 30% support Navalny at this point. He continues to be popular. How he gets his popularity ratings this high is an interesting story, separate story. But he continues to be internally legitimate. It's useless to present him as someone who is entirely dependent on foreign policy adventures. And finally, Russia has been around for quite some time. It always, since Peter the Great, has seen itself as a great power. It's not likely to change ever since Vladimir Putin departs. 
I, I want to get have you talk more about this this values. Um, you know, in your in your book, which you've you've mentioned a little bit already, uh, published in two thousand nineteen, the dark double U.S. media, Russia, and the politics of values. Um, he, I, I want you. It it seems to me if you look at the rhetoric, both coming out of the American foreign policy establishment, uh, and to some extent coming out of Russia, it, values broadly defined seem to be. Uh, one of the the lenses in which the relationship is is seen. What kind of how do these values structure U.S. Russia relations, and what values are they? Well, it's a very big question, uh, and it's it's also difficult to firmly uh, define them because they are in process of being constructed as well, in part because of, because of the interaction constant interaction with the outside environment. But historically, Russia, of course, has uh, developed its own sense of cultural identity. It has roots in Orthodox Christianity. It has roots as far as Byzantium is concerned, because Russia, of course, is Christian, but it is not associated with Catholic Rome. It has its own set of values. Politically speaking, what is essential to stress is that Russia is not just historically part of Europe, but it became a centralized independent state even before it joined Europe, so to speak. It's, these are the roots of the uh, Moscovy state after uh, Russia spent two centuries or so on the Mongols' occupation. It was able to ultimately rebuild itself uh, as a centralized state. And that identity that we are both culturally independent from the West and politically independent as an autonomous state continues to be important today. Uh, then it translated into the notion of great power. It's already Peter the Great contribution after he defeated Sweden. And Sweden at the time was the centralized state and the hegemon in Europe. Russia became a great power too. So I would say these three elements continue to be important today. They have been transformed ideologically in multiple ways in 19th century under the Soviet system. Right now there are different ideological constructs. Putin is not entirely sure what the ideology for Russia is, but he knows in his guts that Russia is a a strong state, or should be a strong state. In practice, actually, it's not. But it should be a strong state, and it should be a great power, and we will not tolerate insults. We must, we must respond in kind each time our sovereignty, our statehood, our great power status is challenged by outsiders. And outsiders is primarily the West, at least in his mind. And what about for the United States? What's driving the values from the American side? For the United States, uh, it's different. It really is. It really is quite Americans like the word "exceptional" uh, uh, identity, and to some extent, I think that's true. That's correct because the what American, uh, what American founding fathers have established is really quite a unique set of uh, values and political system. It has relationships and roots in the. Uh, um, uh, in the uh, Western European tradition, particularly British tradition. Uh, but it also is quite distinct uh, by itself because of its own historical experience, because of its uh, not just Monroe Doctrine, but the way the United States established itself with respect to uh, Mexicans and the rest of the world. Um, uh, so you continue to hear these reference, references to the uh, shining city on the hill, our exceptional, indispensable role. And there are some myths in American foreign policy that continue to inform this. Uh, they are particularly common for American liberals. Joe Biden is a good example because he fully shares these myths. He believes, for example, that, the, uh, that we are now continue to live in a liberal world order. That's the myth number one. He believes that the United States is indispensable for this world order. If the United States is not there, then this world is going to collapse. So this, uh, in some respects, um, uh, catastrophic mentality is there. Um, and he also believes that he must engage 
in dual containment of both Russia and China, and it will be successful. This myth does continue to be linked to the United States identity and the perception of itself as the leader of the world, the hegemonic power in the best sense of the world, as a shining city on the hill. What about for, I mean, and this is something else that you deal with in this book, and that is is domestic politics, right? Foreign policy isn't completely uh, separate from domestic issues. So, so what role does both the United States, Russia and the United States in domestic politics, but also United States and Russian domestic politics shape and influence the, the, the international relations? That's a great question. And uh, this is really an extension of what I did in the dark double, because what happens with the dark double image after the uh, 2016 and the role that Russia played in 2016 elections is that Russia's image become internalized. It was previously, and actually the United States is coming back to that image, it was mostly external other. Russia was the outside threat, the foreign threat. And now after the 2016 elections where Russia did indeed participate somehow, we don't know fully the extent of Russia's interference, uh, we can discuss it further, but based on what we know so far that Russia did interfere, but it did not fundamentally alter the outcomes. So it didn't really steal the elections, but it influenced them. And based on this, in part because of the internal polarization, because of the difference, political difference, uh, to some extent cultural too, between liberals on the one hand and Trump on the other, Russia became the significant other playing the major role in domestic politics in the United States. Russia became Trump and Trump became Russia. Uh, and it became convenient for the uh, for Trump opponents to use Russia as a way to get him out of the office, as a way to impeach him. So this is where the dark double became quintessential internally. Why? Well, because as I said, in this case, power and culture reinforced each other. In this case, uh, what some international relations scholars call security dilemma became exacerbated by domestic politics. Security dilemma is essentially when two sides misconstrue each other. They see every move the other side makes as offensive. Even if it's defensive in practice, it is viewed and constructed as offensive. And the other side views you the same way it becomes very dangerous, very difficult to get out of it. And it's exacerbated by domestic politics, by cultural perceptions. That's the role that domestic politics has played after 2016. Uh, hopefully now it's changing in part because Trump is out of the office and Joe Biden uh, wants in this case to have uh, more control of domestic politics. So he wants ultimately to deal with Russia as, um, as an object of foreign policy rather than domestic policy. That's the difference, I would say. And, and what about in, in, in Russian domestic politics? In Russian domestic politics, it's also securitized. It's also um, similar to the United States is not adequate perception, just as Americans, um, I would say, display um, exaggerated fears of Russia, you know, some of them refer to uh, 2016 as Pearl Harbor, as uh, September the 11th. Uh, this is really an absolutely disproportionate reaction to what happened, especially if you remember that the United States has really interfered, meddled in Russian politics much more extensively over these 30 years, financially, politically. And so that's important to keep things in proportion. But you have this perception really securitized, really inadequate, and it uh, reverberates and uh, uh, plays a similar role, I would say, in Russian domestic politics. Uh, Russia sees itself again as a great power. Its interests are constantly encroached and violated. So the United States is a useful image domestically and it's not just useful because usefulness implies rationality, but it's also fear. It's also cultural fear. 
It's not just Putin, it's not just propaganda, but it's also the society that feels uncomfortable with the United States' role in international politics. And again, it becomes a metaphor, a dark double that is also applicable with respect to the United States on part of many Russians. And that's, as I said, is potentially very dangerous, it's difficult to get out unless you have leadership commitment on both sides to get out of it because, because of the understanding of how dangerous this might be. I want to have you talk a bit about Ukraine because over the last few weeks, again, here is another situation where it seems to me both sides are kind of talking past each other. Uh, you know, there's been a war scare more or less in the media and amongst policymakers and politicians over Eastern Ukraine uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, what is your view of the situation and, and what are Russia's objectives in Eastern Ukraine now, you know, six years after uh, the Maidan revolution? Well, you, you're right that this is certainly another potentially very dangerous development. We have ever since Biden came to power, and it's been only three months, uh, actually less uh, so, there have been already several crises. Uh, in one case, uh, Biden promised that he will uh, use a, a cyber attack against Russian cyber attack against solar winds. That's one potentially dangerous crisis, given what cyber area potentially can do to United States and Russian national security. It's very dangerous. And Ukraine is another crisis, a major crisis, I think. We need to be mindful of Russia's broad objectives with respect to Ukraine. I think, uh, generally speaking, what Russia wants in Ukraine is quite clear. It wants military, military neutrality of Ukraine. And it has been quite clear that this is absolutely essential for, for Russia. It wants to be able to continue to transport energy to Europe. And number three, Russia wants uh, to protect um, some of those who are Russian citizens in Ukraine and potentially those who continue to gravitate towards Russia, uh, uh, even in Ukraine, particularly eastern part of Ukraine, given that these countries have been members of the same state for some 300 plus years. It's not surprising that they're very close, that there are very close cultural relationships, political relationships, and many people in Ukraine continue to see Russia as, um, as, as a friend, uh, as a partner. So Russia's preferences in this conflict have, have, has been consistent with the so-called Minsk agreement. And Minsk agreement, um, is not that complicated, but one point is worth stressing is that it assumes that Kyiv will engage in dialogue with what whom it calls Eastern terrorists and Eastern separatists. It's essential ultimately to reach an agreement based on dialogue, based on conversation, and that agreement will result in some sort of autonomy for Donbass for Donetsk, for Lugansk, uh, and for people who live there. That's roughly 3.5 million population. This buildup uh, is uh, new, and it's important to understand that this is a response, I would say, to at least two developments. One of them um, has to do with Ukraine. The other one has to do with the United States, NATO, and the West in general. When Biden came to power, it immediately sent a message to Ukrainians and to those who are now extremely critical of Russia in Eastern Europe and elsewhere, that there will be new pressures on Russia. There will be renewed pressures on Russia. And now is the time for us to act. We might be able to take advantage of it. We might be able to revive some of their, um, uh, some of our, some of our uh, political uh, uh, cloud, so to speak. We might even be able to return some of the uh, lost lands. Uh, Ukraine, in particular, is thinking perhaps about the apparent successes of Azerbaijan that fought a war against Armenia and returned a considerable portion of Nagorno-Karabakh successfully. 
So what happened uh, soon after Biden came to power, uh, Zelensky, who is president of Ukraine, uh, passed a new military doctrine. That's the uh, end of last March. In that military doctrine, he made it very clear that he wants Crimea back. And that was read by the Kremlin uh, as a sign that Ukrainians are getting ready uh, for perhaps taking Crimea back by force. Then we moved some, some of the essential troops in the eastern part. He also launched attacks against pro-Russian forces uh, in Ukraine. He banned three opposition channels controlled by Medvedchuk, who is perhaps most pro-Russian, and who is, by the way, increasingly popular. So all of this uh, uh, indicated to the Kremlin, then there is a potential that Ukraine will indeed at least launch some provocations as it did before, as Poroshenko did before in Kerch, Azov Sea, in Crimea, uh, by sending some terrorists there. So that may exacerbate the situation. On top of this, you have some movement of troops on NATO part uh, in preparations for future uh, military exercises called defending Europe, yes, from whom, so all of this is also viewed by the Kremlin as suspicious and they want to show force. They want to demonstrate that they are capable of responding. And you hear statements from Pentagon that we are, the United States is sending sh ships to the Black Sea, that we will do what we can to uh, protect Ukraine. That can be misconstrued as it was misconstrued by Georgians in the year 2008 as a military support against Russia and become a green light for launching some provocations. So I would uh, view this with all these considerations in, in mind, again, as a primarily defensive move on part of Russia, whether you agree with this or not, this is how it's viewed by Russians. And this is something that potentially can uh, improve and be de-escalated if the West, in this case, will continue to blame Russia for everything that is happening in the crisis. It's far from being this way. Uh, uh, different sides are involved in different respects, and solution must be complex, too. Now, most analysts uh, see Russia as, as ranking pretty low vis-a-vis uh, -vis China in the Biden administration's foreign policy posture. Um, so what... Where do you think will Russia will fit in this U.S.-China uh, increasing um, standoff? What is Russia's role here? Yeah, that's that's a good, that's a great question. Given the role of China, you can no longer talk about U.S.-Russia relationship without discussing China. Can you? I think uh, uh, it probably is not accurate to say that Russia is ranked low with respect to China. I think the uh, threat assessment is more complex in the United States. I think probably more accurate to say that Russia is, uh, is ranked relatively high as a, a short-term threat. Uh, it is viewed by many even as a peer competitor in the cyber area, in nuclear area, in intelligence capacity. It has other capabilities, but not the economy. And this is where China is future uh, strategic long-term threat, whereas Russia is not. And based on those assessments, you hear some disparaging statements, including coming from Biden and his entourage, that Russia really is uh, not in the position to compete with us. All we have to do is engage in deterrence and wait until it comes our way. And we will be able, perhaps, then to address the China issue. Uh, so you have uh, two potential options. One is to uh, deter Russia and yet find a way to cooperate with this. And the other one is to punish Russia based on what you be believe Russia has done to you and expect that Russia will still cooperate simply because you feel that you are the strongest. And that seems to be Biden's approach so far what he calls dual track approach and what many in Russia view as schizophrenic approach that's not effective because Russians will continue to respond. And in the meantime, if you ask me about the role of China, 
in general in these relationships, so China is the, I would say, the main beneficiary of this confrontation between US and Russia. Uh, it has US destructed, it has US overstretched, because the United States is in no position, most analysts will agree, to engage in dual containment of both Russia and China. And it has Russia on its side, uh, increasingly helpful in terms of energy uh, resources, uh, multiple pipelines are built the uh, Chinese way right now. Uh, Russia's military technologies continue to be highly rated across the world. China certainly has increased its air defense capacity based on, on Russian uh, cooperation. And there is more and more coming when it comes to technology. Russia is increasingly changing from iPhones to Huawei and other technologies. So that, that is to Chinese advantage. Whether this is to Russia's advantage is an interesting question to ask. But at least for now, Russians feel that because of the security threat that the United States represents, they have no other choice but to build stronger and stronger relationships with Chinese. I've conducted a survey of Russian foreign policy experts recently for my other project, and I was struck, I did not expect this, I was struck by how many Russians now are prepared for a full-fledged military alliance with Chinese, including those people whom I did not expect to give me this answer. Why, you might ask? Well, because of this fear that otherwise we are not protected. Uh, here's a question from a chat that follows along these lines, and, and that is, you know, given what you said about the United States doesn't have the capacity to contain both China and Russia, um, what is the best policy, uh, this is the question, what is the best policy the United States should take uh, towards Russia vis-a-vis -vis China? Is, is it to make a deal with, to make some sort of agreement with Russia as a, to counteract the Chinese by, say, you know, uh, giving, uh, coming to agreement with Ukraine, with Syria, and the other hot spots that the United States and Russia are, are kind of butting heads with. Uh, what do you think the U.S. approach should be to the, these issues? I think um, mainly the United States should recognize that it's in no longer in a position to contain both powers. Uh, it should also recognize that it has multiple issues to address at home. Uh, and it should recognize that both Russia and China are vital for the world order, for the future world order. So all these issues somehow must be taken together and combined in articulating a United States future grand strategy. So far, US does not have a grand strategy. It does not have Russia strategy. It does not have very good China strategy either, in part because it's internally divided and low confident, in part because it seeks to develop different policies with respect to different regencies, and there is no uh, coherent core foundation from which to move forward. And I think that foundation should be ultimately to put your house in order first, because the United States clearly is overstretched. It used to be a shining example. It's no longer a shining example, not to Russia, not to China. Uh, it should then uh, clearly agree on some of the global issues, how to address those we haven't touched on climate change. But really, 20 years from today, all this uh, uh, crisis between the US and Russia, uh, China and the US, may seem small relative to where we will be, relative to major, major issues that we will inherit from not addressing the climate change issues right now. So it's important to address global issues first, jointly, and those global issues include, as I said, climate change, nuclear stability, and potentially disarmament, at least uh, to some extent. They would include also the issues of poverty. Uh, this is, in some respects, the old Russian uh, Gorbachev New Thinking Agenda. New Thinking Agenda that unfortunately was not addressed, but it was well conceived uh, at the time as a global framework, and it continues to be important. If you remember what Gorbachev raised at the time, these were the three issues, poverty, nuclear stability, and disarmament, 
and environmental crisis and environmental sustainability or climate change as we speak today. If the United States will shape, shape its foreign policy strategy with these global issues in mind, it might be easier to address some other differences with Russia, differences with China, with Ukraine. For Ukraine, it's not that difficult of, a, of an issue to solve, practically speaking. If you, if you set aside all the political differences, all the, uh, all the complaints and grievances, there is a very simple formula. You would have military neutrality, you would have autonomy for uh, Ukrainian minorities, and you would have Russia, uh, European Union, the United States, all contributing to Ukrainian economic revival uh, and ultimately integration in the broader security framework of Europe and Eurasia, if you have major blocks, so to speak, uh, uh, of security thinking in place, uh, that might be possible and doable. But unfortunately for that, you must have a political will that is absent on all sides. Uh, oh, here's another question. You know, Biden announced a few days ago that uh, the United States will pull troops out of Afghanistan by September. Uh, what do you think that that troop withdrawal, what kind of space does it open up for potential Russia and Chinese influence in Afghanistan? It's hard for me to answer. I'm not really an, an expert on Afghanistan. Uh, I, I think it's certainly is a possibility. And I would say it's quite likely too, simply because uh, it's almost a given that uh, the current government will collapse in Afghanistan. Essentially what is happening right now uh, is a repetition of what happened with the Soviet withdrawal in Afghanistan. The United States lost the war, uh, but it has to withdraw nonetheless. It's long overdue, uh, this withdrawal. Uh, personally, um, many Americans rightfully feel that it's overdue and, and American soldiers must, must go back home. But politically, it certainly means that Taliban will uh, gain an upper hand. It's likely to defeat the current government and come to power. It may be potentially destabilizing, uh, as it was in the past. And in that case, uh, who else will find a way somehow to stabilize the relationships if, if not the uh, neighboring powers? You have China, you have Russia, you have Iran you have Pakistan, it will not be easy to have them all to agree. Uh, but I would say that if these de developments will, will move in this direction of destabilization, then uh, as much as Ra Russia wants to stay out of it, it will be necessary, necessary to play a role, including economic role and financial role to stabilize Afghanistan. What are some of the, you know, you've mentioned a couple, climate change, nuclear disarmament. Um, do you see that, you know, do you see that these issues are possible places of cooperation? I mean, you have the climate summit coming up. Biden proposed to Putin in a phone call two days ago about a potential, you know, one-on-one -on -one meeting with him. Do you think that these larger global issues have a potential for leading to some kind of, you know, understanding and workable relationship? I don't, Sean. Not at this point. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say this, but at this point, uh, the... Um fundamental disagreements on interests and future world order, uh, mutual perceptions by both sides of revisionism are likely to get in the way. Uh, this approach that uh, President Biden takes is not likely to be viewed as conducive to cooperation in Russia. Russia will continue to respond in kind to the extent possible symmetrically and asymmetrically. And as a result of this, um, my unfortunate prediction is that these global issues will suffer, will, will be a hostage to this power struggle, US-Russia power struggle. Um, as it looks today, Putin is not likely to participate in that summit that you mentioned. He hasn't even accepted yet. Uh, even though this summit is coming up in a week. He was invited uh, almost three weeks ago. 
I haven't seen the news, maybe you know this better than I do, but I haven't seen the news that Chinese leader accepted too. So uh, what will this summit be without Russia and China, uh, particularly China, probably the largest uh, emission uh, uh, power based for, for, for emissions uh, being present? Uh, it will not be as legitimate. It will be very difficult to get Russia and China to cooperate. Um, Putin would like, in principle, to move in this direction, but not at the expense of uh, uh, solving other political issues that he has a long list of with Biden. So Biden first uh, insults him in public, then uh, he calls him and says, let's, let's have a conversation. Then immediately after conversation, he slaps major sanctions and he still wants to talk. That is very strange way of building relationships with Russia. And of course, climate change and other issues may, be, may become a hostage of this power struggle. That's very unfortunate because we have a long list of these issues. You mentioned the climate change, and that's a big one. Another big one, and we also have a limited time, is nuclear stability. Biden was smart to immediately renew the START Treaty as soon as he came to power, and that generated hopes in Russia. Uh, right now, we have five years, which seems like a long period of time, to negotiate a new nuclear treaty. But it really is not a long time if you consider the long range of issues. All kinds of new nuclear weapons appeared. The United States is talking about militarizing the outer space. Uh, there are sharp precision, uh, high precision weapons that must be included in, the, in, the, in this future agreement. And then if you want to engage China and other nuclear powers, it becomes extremely complicated. You cannot do this without solving these other political issues. So I'm not very optimistic as of now, unless Biden fundamentally changes. And knowing Biden, it's hard to expect it. You know, you, you paint uh, an incredibly, I mean, you're not the only one, of course, <laughs> but you paint an incredibly dark picture of, of the future of U.S.-Russia relations and, and where both of these powers will, you know, sit amongst the rest of the world. Um, and, and, you know, the it seems like the logical extension of what you're saying with both sides seem seemingly to be talking past one another is some kind of major conflict is going to have to seems like it's going to have to occur to create some kind of space for a breakthrough um given this and and this is my last question for you what are you going to be looking you know paying attention to in the coming months and years uh, for in, in regard to U.S.-Russia relations? What are some big issues on, on your radar? Let me first uh, observe, Sean, that um, I don't unfortunately disagree with you that this major crisis and even major confrontation is not excluded. At the same time, my uh, hopes have been and continue to be that we still have enough rational people on both sides. Accidents do happen, misperceptions do take place, and sometimes they escalate uh, in, in a military confrontation. But at the same time, neither Biden, nor Putin, nor Chinese leaders want any military collisions. And they push as far as they want, as far as they want to push, and then they stop, because they understand that beyond this point is really risky, really dangerous. And unfortunately, this is how U.S.-Russia relationships have been for quite some time. Uh, you might recall different incidents. I'm not going to go back to the 90s, but if you, even if you go back to the Trump's era, you remember that Russia had really high hopes, grand, grand bargain, uh, lifting sanctions, and so forth. And then, boom, Trump ordered military strikes in Syria against the uh, uh, Syrian targets with potential presence of Russian soldiers, that created a major crisis because Russians said, well, if you do that, then we will attack platforms from which you attack these facilities. And Trump backed down uh, and the, uh, the uh, lessons lesson that both Russians and Ukrainians learned that there must be very clear channels of communication, very clear ways to de-escalate the crisis. Both sides have learned from this. They did not go in this direction. Uh, then Biden's era already, 
or era or time already produced some crisis. They have de-escalated so far the solar winds crisis. They did not go on the road of uh, cyber attack against Russian facilities, even though they could have, even though from what we know, they even planted some malware in Russian cyber capabilities, um, and that may cause major damage in Russia. Uh, they find a way now, they're finding a way to de-escalate the Ukraine crisis. That's how they are learning. So this is not to exclude military confrontation, but neither side wants it. Both sides are quite rational the way they see themselves, and they should be able to step back from the potential disaster. Uh, but the issues probably uh, to continue and to conclude with your second part of the question, the issues will continue to be how much the United States is prepared to isolate Russian economy from the global economy, whether this will continue to try to find sort of a middle ground in sanctions, because even this time, Biden did not go all the way to escalate sanctions. He left uh, multiple options and he warned Putin not to escalate in response to his actions. Uh, we will watch for whether or not there will be any attempts on part of the United States to acknowledge the role of Ukrainian provocations in uh, uh, Russia-Ukraine relationships. Uh, we will watch how carefully, carefully how Americans are arming uh, the American side, providing all kinds of military training, pushing them towards NATO. These are very big issues, very important red lines. And of course, we must look at other areas of potential militarization, the Arctic, the outer space, the relationships with some Middle Eastern countries, the Iran issue continues to be on top of the agenda. But unfortunately, these issues of global stability, climate change, nuclear issues, are the ones that need to be addressed first and foremost. That was Andrei Sigankov. Andrei Sigankov is a professor in the Departments of Political Science and International Relations at San Francisco State University, where he teaches Russian post-Soviet comparative and international politics. He is the author of many books and articles, most recently, Russia and America, The Asymmetric Rivalry, and The Dark Double, U.S. Media, Russia, and the Politics of Values, published by Oxford University Press. Okay, so Amy, we just uh, heard this interview with Andrei Sigonkov, and you know I'm I'm really interested in your thoughts because you know you're kind of an outsider to all of this U.S. Russia or whatever stuff. Um, so, what were some of the things that you that struck you about the interview? Yeah, one thing that I found really interesting about this interview um, that Andrei talked about kind of early on was um, there's a narrative that we hear a lot that Putin is kind of Russia. Right. He is the embodiment of Russia. And once Putin leaves office, then a lot of the issues we're seeing are just going to magically disappear. And that's really not the case. Right. Um, there's a lot going on in Russia that has a basis in historical precedents, that has a basis in cultural precedents uh, that really is independent of Putin and that will continue even after Putin leaves office. So I found that really fascinating. Yeah, you know, it's 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 this idea that, you know, everything kind of boils down to one guy, i.e. Putin, um, is is kind of strange because on the one hand, this is exactly the the what the Kremlin tries to communicate in that Russia and Putin are indivisible. And I always found that, you know, in the West, if we speak broadly, the attachment to Putin as a person is in some way fulfilling the very propaganda that the Kremlin is is putting out there about Putin and Russia, Putin basically embodying Russia. And 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 you're right. Um, you know, that's one of the things I appreciate about about Andre's take on things is that he looks at it historically. Right. He he looks at the fact that, you know, Russian foreign policy you know, comes out of a particular history, a particular historical experience, and more so, and I, I, I don't think he, he delved into this too much, in Russia, like in America, there is a foreign policy establishment. And there are arguments and debates within Russia about how should Russia proceed on the world stage. And one thing I think uh, people who are interested in, in this stuff should keep in mind is that, 
you know, there's going to be, a, like there is here in the United States, there's going to be a generational change in Russia in terms of foreign policy experts. So it'll be interesting to see what younger, this new crop will, how they will see Russia's place in the world uh, in the coming decade. Oh, yeah, I'm very interested. Okay, uh, so you've been listening to the SRB podcast. Uh, I'm Sean Guillory, and I'm joined here by Amy Parlier. Um, once again, if you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on your favorite social media platform. Share it with your friends. Tell your family about it. Uh, if you like, if you like this podcast and want to help support it, please go to my Patreon page at Patreon.com/slash/SeanRussiaBlog or to the podcast website srbpodcast.org and, and join the table of ranks. Until next time, bye. I guess I could blame it on the city we live in, I mean Perfect weather full of beautiful women or else I could pass all the credit to the lights Maybe that's the reason that we shine so bright There's something in the air tonight, man Like whatever we do is the right plan If you're with me, won't you raise your right hand And solemnly swear on the kicks and snares I carry down the road less traveled, sucker Fighting out my words like Scrabble, fucker Done that and been up in the battles, but the Times have changed like a channel, what the Hell's got me vexed, a few problems Need a couple puffs in the backs and I'll solve them Leave it up to us cause we're next out of all them Turning all your heads like a chest in the bottom Just waiting to hear some new music from the crew who's sick. It's the L. Damn straight with the mighty 12th letter. One listen a day might just make your health better. Move to the side, step back, don't you understand? We've been doing this since y'all were practicing the running man. Pass the lighter, homie, cause I got the blunt in hand. He's the cheap shot, two times than my brother, man. He said we're awesome, we rock. Told me respect and blessings to represent hip-hop. I heard they bang it on the block. She said she loves dancing to it cause the beats are so hot. What, wait a minute, as always, they get it, play it backwards. Ain't no hidden messages in it, just lexicon, baby, listen.